Good morning, everybody. If you guys don't know me, I'm Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at Mayus Church. My roles have shifted a few times here and there. I've been a little bit of everything, I guess. Right now, I guess my title is uh, Young Adults Pastor. Dropping hints there. Um, And so, but yes, I'm glad to be up here today. I'm glad to be sharing and be a part of the sermon series that we've been doing this summer, which is going through Romans, the book of Romans, which is super dense, very intense. A lot of theology, a lot of Paul. Is it, for those of you, <laughs> so for those of you who's been here, like how has it been? Okay, it was silent for a moment. There was some hesitation. Some of you were, I think some of you were like, should I go? Or should I be like, man, it's been, I feel like going through boot camp for Jesus. And it's boot camp for Jesus over here with Paul and his theology. So, but again, I'm super excited. Last week, uh, Jay did an incredible job wrapping up chapter 12. I'm not going to recap too much because I think my, this sermon is going to a lot of intersection between the two, and you'll see a lot of similar things that even Jay had mentioned. So there's a lot of overlap, and so I'm going to just save that for the sermon itself. So, But for today, we are going through Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. It should be on the screen. If not, if you're like old school and want to flip your Bible there, you can go ahead and do that and read it for you guys. Give it a couple of seconds. <clears throat> Romans 13, starting in verse 11. It says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than we, when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of the darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, not in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. I love to pray, so I'm going to pray one more time. More prayer is better than less prayer. That's my motto. I live by that. So if you want to join me, let's pray real quick. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we're here for you. Lord, we're here to be people of worship, people who are living and trying to be like you in every way. So Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that you are here, that you're not coming from afar. You're in this room and you're in this space, and you're the real preacher today. Your word is the word today. You know what everyone needs in this room today. So I ask that you intervene through every heart, through every mind, through every soul that is sitting in this space, that you will come in, that, Lord, that you will touch, that you will renew, that you will revive, that you will change, that you will transform. Lord, that there be an overflow, not just of that, but, Lord, your love, your love for us as daughters and sons of you. So Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So Romans 13, 11 through 14, this is where Paul is specifically addressing Christians. Not necessarily unbelievers, but he's speaking directly to the Christians in the Roman community, 
in the culture of Rome. Yet these Christians are the ones who needs their hearts to be awakened. These are the Christians whose the flame in their heart has grown dim. The, in the place where the, the vigor that they had for Jesus has gone away. Where like you, when you hear Jesus' name, it doesn't have that like little heart palpitation moment anymore. You know, when you hear that, that Jesus died for you, you're like, yeah, I've heard that. This is for those Christians. And I think a lot of us can resonate with that. And I've even myself has been in similar places at times. But Paul is speaking directly to them. This is an alert. This is an urgency. Like you wouldn't go, if your neighbor's house was on fire, you wouldn't run over there, grab a lawn chair and sit down and be like, so the game, man, it's great. Like you, you would be running and screaming, the, my neighbor's house is on fire. We got to go. We got to call 911. We got to get the police. We got to get the, all the firefighters out here and get them here. It's this type of urgent. This is what Paul is talking to the Christians. I don't know if you're familiar with the word lukewarm or for the people who ever like neither. They're just kind of in between. And Revelation has a very way of saying like, the Lord says, I will spit these people out. This is the address that Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to the ones whose heart is fading towards Christ. He's speaking to the one who's losing the joy, losing the tenacity, losing all the things that they originally had when they first believed. This the address to them to wake them up because they're dozing off. They're falling asleep. They're, instead of being conformed to Jesus, they're just going back to the world. There's like a reverse in the way they're going. Instead of walking with God, they're walking away from him. And so Paul is sounding an alarm to wake these Christians up and to have them return faithfully into service with Jesus. But before we dive into these four verses, really, I want this to be a time where like, we take these four verses, dissect them together, and really just pull them apart and just see what Paul is talking about. The importance, the urgency, and how this all means and affects us as fellow believers, as people in a communal setting, how this not only affects us individually, but together as a community. It's not just about me. It's about us and where we're going. And so before we go, for us to understand this a little bit more clearly, Paul in verse 10 of this, we need to read this before going forward. And it says in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, I want to get this love confused. This isn't like, like, this is called agape in Greek. Jay has mentioned last week, there's four different types of love. C.S. Lewis also has an incredible book that's called Four Loves. That if you can read, it'll do it much better than probably I would do today. But this love in specific is talking about agape love. Agape love, which is often called divine love, but also means what God prefers what he prefers, his preference as fellow believers. His preference is us to be like him. Not be like you, but to be like him because being like him is what heals, is what redeems, is what restores society. You know, Jay mentioned last week about Greensboro being the most apathetic place. How do we change that? Love like God. Be the love that he has given us through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. So agape is not used to reference romantic love, nor is it a reference to close friendship, that, as Jay mentioned last week. Agape love involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of will. 
or act of the will. And so Paul amplifies the statement by saying that love is not just a feeling. You know, we all, you know, in our culture, love is like, it's different. It's just like based on really pure emotion. But it's based off of it. It's like, but, but Paul's saying it's not just feeling. It's a behavioral aspect. It's the thing that, let me ask you, do you know that you cannot command an emotion? Like, I can't walk up to Grace and be like, be happy. Like, that's my wife, if you, for those of you don't know. I can't walk up to her and be happy, okay? Be mad. Be upset. Be joyful in the Lord. You know, I can't walk up there and command her that. You know, I cannot do that. But my actions can make her feel that way. And let me, you can go ask her after service. There's many times I've done many different things, and my actions have made her feel different ways. The newlyweds are laughing because they know. <laughs> and so, so Paul is communicating that love must act in keeping Christians from wronging their neighbors. It must act in loving the neighbor. It must follow in Christ. So whose heart is filled with true love that will not cheat or covet, steal, murder, strife, jealousy towards their neighbor? Any ill harm or anything towards them. For us to love our neighbors is to count their welfare our own. M. Scott Peck has a quote. I think he explains it extremely well. The quote is, love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Love is as love does. Love is an act of will, namely both an intention and action. Will also implies choice. We do not have to love. We choose to love. And then I have another quote followed by Derwin Gray, where he says, for Jesus, to love your neighbor is, as you love yourself was to practice justice towards your fellow human beings. So scripture bridges this thought between the love of man and the love of God. It brings these two together and teaches us that we love because God first loved us. Therefore, he that loves God will love his brother and sister. He will love his neighbor. Like Jesus said, when the, the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus in the Gospels and saying, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus' response was, love God by your mind, soul, heart, and strength. And he said the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so for us to say that we love God but not love our neighbor shows that we don't actually love God. To love God, therefore, means we love our neighbor. There's no, like, I'm just going to get one. You're not going to a la carte it and just get one and then somewhat love your neighbor. It is a part of who we are. It is the essence of who we are. Love is the answer. Agape love is the answer. Love is what he is, who we are supposed to be. Love should be the essence of who we are. So now with that all being said, we will go into the next four verses. So the reason for Paul to give all this for necessity for such a lifestyle, he begins in verse 11. And he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from the sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believe. And also the message translation puts it this way. 
but make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of all your day-by-day obligations that you lose track of time and doze off oblivious to God. So I'm going to take that, this whole next four verses, Paul is using the word time. He's using this thing as a correlation. You see this as his theme. And so time in Greek is kairos, as is shown. And there's those four definitions that you can give that were rooted to this word in Greek. Time as an opportunity, opportune time, the suitable time, the right moment, and a favorable moment. So there's this emphasis right now is the time. Not tomorrow, not sometime later, but today. Today, when Jesus was on the cross and the two thieves were beside him and one of them spoke up, will you remember me in paradise? And what did Jesus say? Today. Not tomorrow. But today, I will remember you in paradise. And so why is right now important? As Paul says, we are closer to salvation today than when we first believed. That time has been gradually advancing towards the consummation that we are looking for, the return of Jesus, the second coming where he returns and there's the new earth, the new heaven, the new of re- revival, the new renewal of everything, the restitution of all things, the manifestation of the sons of God, the gathering together in one place in Jesus. Paul is pointing to that, which he with others supposed was supposed to be a closed hand. But understand, Jesus is coming back. We may not see it, but there's an eternal clock that we can't see that is ticking. And there's a time where it's going to run out. And Jesus will return. I think as a lot of the Christians in the Roman culture became passive in their faith. Like, this ain't happening. Like, okay, he's coming back. Sure. Not my lifetime. Not anytime soon. At least I don't think. Like, there's this passive thought of like, man, okay, he's coming at some point. But the reality is, he is. Scripture says that only the Father knows when he's coming, and it will come unexpectedly. That he will arrive. He will come, and I believe it will be like an ordinary day. You'll be going to work. You'll be going about your day. You'll be doing your obligations. You'll be doing the things that you need to be doing, all these other things. Jesus is just going to show up. You're going to hear a trumpet, and everybody's going to be freaking out. Because the whole world's going to be hearing this trumpet. It ain't going to be like a song that you listen to on your headphones or something. But the whole world is going to be hearing this. And how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? When you have the idea that that tomorrow Jesus literally can come back. How does that make you feel? What thoughts are racing through your head? As Paul would say, would you even be awake? Spiritually. Paul emphasizes being awake because they were already dead spiritually. And to become alive is to wake up. To wake up. As Jesus even said to Lazarus when he was in the tomb, when he said, wake up. Come alive. To wake up. To be alive as a Christian. But if Jesus came today, you heard that trumpet, would you be afraid? Would you be rejoicing? 
would you feel like you ran out of time? I mean, once he's here, it's it. There's no game over restart. It's it. No return. Like you can't say, Jesus, it's it. The time is then. I had this moment with my uh, oldest brother. I was like new to my faith. And I was really kind of not as bold to talk about my faith around my parents. And one day it was just me and him. We're going down the road. And we're just having conversations about different stuff. And, you know, I was like, you know, I'm, it's my brother. I mean, come on. I was like, well, you hadn't really had this type of conversation. I'm sure he's heard me talk about it and brought it up and all this other stuff. And so we're just going down the road. And finally, I got the, the courage to just be like, hey, um, so Jesus, where you at with all that? Like, would you, would you, would you believe? Like, do you believe? Like, where are you, where do you stand with all this? And simply put, he said, I just want to do what I want to do right now. And then maybe later I can clean up. I think that's really how the world lives. I think if we're honest, a lot of people in our circles, maybe even some of us in this room feel that way. Let me just do what I want. And then when I get, get to some point in my life and everything's cool, I'll be like, all right, Jesus, I've had my own, I had my fun, wild ride. Now it's time to be a good man or a good woman and tighten things up. And here I am. But if you live that way, you don't know when Jesus is coming. It literally could be tomorrow. It could be today. It can be within the hour. It could be within 30 minutes. It could. And so, honestly, and I think most of us would be afraid if Jesus showed up. And I think why is because we haven't taken what we believe seriously. The Gospels, what Jesus has done, the Great Commission, the omission, and what he's asked of us to do, what Paul said in his letters and his epistles, what you see in the Thessalonians, what you see in Titus, what you see in any place in Scripture. We read it with this intention of like, okay, I want to be like this, but never do. And then we face these things that pull us back. There's these things that we go through our head, and it's this word the address is coming in that we're, you know, Jesus isn't expecting you to be perfect. Jesus does not expect that from us. Instead of being committed to a right walk with God, we're essentially sleep and sleepwalking with God. We have basically left God on red. You Gen Z's know what I'm talking about when I say that phrase. So does anyone in this room sleep talk? I mean, I do. I ain't gonna lie. You really only know that because someone else told you that you were sleep talking. <laughs> does anyone sleepwalk? Some of y'all are probably afraid a minute. Honestly, if I saw someone sleepwalking, I'd be a little scared. Like, imagine someone's in the room and lights off and they're just like. <laughs> I'm like, nah, fam. I'm going to go in the room and start praying. Like, Lord, break a covering over this house. We need the anointing oil to come down, the Holy Spirit. All right. Does anyone, <laughs> does anyone think in their sleep? Trick question. Call it dreaming. It's <laughs> You just dream and all this good stuff. Does anyone sing in their sleep? I've never experienced this. I'm just throwing out the John, I believe you probably sing in your sleep. I probably do too. My roommate, he did. Like singing, literally singing. It was like bizarre. You could be funny or it could be terrifying. It just depends on the song, you know? 
you know, if he's singing great, is thou felt like thou faithfulness, I'm like, come on, brother. Or if he's sitting over singing something from like hardcore rock, you're like, <laughs> you're like over freaking out, screaming. Well, here's my point. <laughs> we can do many church things or no things at all and still be asleep towards God. We can do all these things and be asleep. Our attitudes and practices may have, you know, conformed to this world where it's easier to do what you want versus living like Jesus. Maybe you looked around at the people that you even know or just see, and you know there aren't Christians, and there's no urgency to share the gospel anymore. Maybe when you turn to God's word once a week or so, there's no hunger anymore. And you just come because you, you have the mentality, I better do this. But the words don't leap off the page at you anymore. Maybe there's no effect to do God's work. We hear in the church, we hear in the communities where there's things that need to be done, but we become unbothered. Maybe there's this, a slow fade where your relationship with Jesus isn't where it is anymore. As Christians, we must stay awake. And active. This is what Paul is saying today. We need to wake up. We need to get to work. We need to stay focused on Jesus because it's the opposite is happening. As Paul says in Romans 12, 1, to be a living sacrifice and not a sleeping one. To be a living sacrifice. You have to be awake, living. And he continues this illustration of sorts by saying in verse 12, the night is far gone, day is at hand, So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. We all know that without even thinking that the sun will rise in the morning. You don't have to think about it. You just wake up. It's just subconscious. You don't, like, oh, there's the sun. Every morning that you wake up, it's just there. You know it's going to happen. Paul is driving home that point that the day of the Lord is like that. You just know it's coming. And so therefore, in response, we need to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so in this, our former habits of life are here as elsewhere, regarded as clothing once worn. So you see this words that Paul gives, it's like putting on, putting off. And he's using this as a form of clothing or garment. And so in the Old Testament, clothing had roles to play. In people's life, priests would wear different linings to perform different duties. They had to do all these different things. They would wear white garments to symbolize the purity of God and that they have went through the purification rites so they could be worthy to approach him. It was a whole process, and they had to wear this. And then, But even evil people also had to put on garments. In this case, garments of violence, garments of prostitution, garments of just different types of garments that symbolize something. And so even the priests sometimes would even wear defiled clothes. So you just see this throughout all of scripture. You see where Jesus was on the top of Mount, not Mount, I was about to say Mount Sinai, but it's Mount Transfiguration. And he's there with Peter and Paul, not, excuse me, not Paul, Peter, Johnson, and James, and they're sitting there and they see the glory of the Lord and they describe what he looked like. And he had talked about his clothes being white as, as lightning. So, Though now, from the angle of the New Testament that we live in, this once physical representation is now an inward transformation. It's not a garment that you have to physically wear 
but is inside of you, clothed by the Holy Spirit. This perspective is brought up in all of Paul's letters, essentially. Every letter, at some point or time, he talks about putting off and putting on. In his early ministry, his middle of his life ministry, and near the end of his life ministry. This was a continual thought throughout his entire life that affected him so much so that he's going to put in every letter to every Christian community that he was going to address. It was vitally important of putting on or putting on the light and the armor and also taking off the darkness. But how many of you are afraid of the dark? Thank you, Manet. Okay. We got some other people. It's okay. No shame. As a kid, I, like, I, was, I was afraid of the dark. Like, namely because my mom loves horror movies. So I was traumatized early on. Like, I don't know if you watched The Grudge and all these other movies. They're kind of old. And all I can just think about was that as a kid. Like, it was all different types of movies. I was just really dramatized. Like, anytime I would go to bed, I would have to have a light on. I don't know why I thought that would come for me if there was literal monsters around, but it would be there. I would have to have this light as a source of comfort to show me the room. There was no darkness. I could see it all. But now, I think we're afraid to cut the light on. We don't want to cut the light because you already know what's in the dark. And you don't want to be confronted by it in the light. You know what's in the dark. I don't have to tell you. You know it for yourself. But this is the reason. In your mind, you don't want to cut the light on because you see scolding. You see condemnation. You see shame. You see guilt. You see filthiness. But that's not what Jesus sees. You tricked yourself in believing that was what Jesus says. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. So we went off and had this misinterpretation of light and seeing it as that when light was actually a means of healing. It was a means of showing and illuminating the truth. As Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. But some of us don't like the truth. But we need the truth in our life. We need to see every corner, every crevice, and every dark place in our life. Not as a form of like, oh, let me, let me just show where my mess. But no, that Jesus wants to heal you. He truly wants to heal you. And you're only hurting yourself by staying in the dark. You're only hurting yourself. Jesus is on the other side. I love that artwork that we, I think we showed plenty of times before. But Jesus was on the other side of the door and he was knocking. But the door handle was only on the side of the person that he was trying to get their attention of. So Jesus couldn't open the door. It had to be the person on the other side of the door. That's how it is. We got to let Jesus in. You got to let seven light. You act like we are some vampires sometimes that when I go into sunlight, I'm going to start melting. I'm going to start burning. That is not how it works. You're going to start healing. You're going to start being transformed truly. That you're going to be renewed. Now, this isn't to say it's going to be just that easy. It isn't to say that this was all going to be just do it, go in the light, and that's how it is. Because the armor of light represents fighting. Paul's terminology for a lot of times for Christians is to be what? Soldiers. There's this talk in soldiers. Why, would, why else would you need armor? Because you're going into battle. You are fighting literally every day. He didn't see this as like, 
all from eight to five, I'm going to be fighting some temptation and other things. And then from the rest of the day, I'm off. I'm going to take my armor off. No, this is literally day, every day, all the time. You're going to be fighting and we got to put on the armor because the darkness is all around us. We are in the darkness and to be a light amongst it, we have to put the armor on. That is not conforming to the world. You put the armor on, you're conforming to Jesus, to be like Jesus, and you're saying yes to Jesus. And you become to look like Jesus when you put that armor on. That's the whole point. We are to fight. And it's not just the fight to get through the day. It's fight to make the space for God. It's a fight to pray. You know this. I don't have to tell you. I've experienced my own life. There's just sometimes you're like, why am I even praying? Why even bother? I don't understand Levitical, like Leviticus, like this goes over my head. Or even other simple forms in, throughout scripture where you're like, how is this important? How does this change me? Some of you, if we're being honest, haven't read scripture and I don't know, you don't even know when. There's a void, there's an emptiness. Your soul is starving because it needs the food of the word in your life. It is a battle. The war has been won. But the battle still is going on. And some of us has taken off the armor and are just ready for an ambush. And when it happens, we're already going to be defeated because we weren't ready. We weren't on guard. We weren't alert. We weren't awake. And Paul gives an examples for this reason of the armor in verse 13. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. First century Rome was known to be filled with all kinds of craziness and immorality for their brutal practices of the arena to sexual immorality of all kinds. Doesn't it sound familiar? You know, look all around. Go outside, look at America. Look at what we watch on TV. Look what we support. Look, 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 look for what we advocate. Look for where our money goes. And you'll surely see a lot going on that's very similar to what's this. But all these practices of darkness that Paul is showing are all in the dark. They're all happening at nighttime. All of it happened in the dark because sin loves concealment. Sin happens. You don't, you don't see people just go out here and sin publicly. It's all in private. You know, you're not just going to walk out here, oh, I sin, and everyone's watching. It's just not how it goes. You sin in private because sin loves concealment. Concealment. And in the same response to when God came into the garden with Adam and Eve, they hid themselves away from him and covered themselves by the fig leaves. So you already see a similarity with Paul's teaching is that when Adam and Eve did what they did, they took the bite of the apple. Their eyes were illuminated. They ascend. God came in the cool of the day, and they hid. They ran away, and they clothed themselves with fig leaves. We do the same thing. We sin, we run, and hide. Where God's saying, where are you? He's saying, where are you? What I love is in Colossians 3.3, it talks about being hidden in Christ for those who are believers. Be hidden in Christ. That same word, for hidden in Greek, is also concealed. So instead of us having to be concealed in sin, 
when it tries to keep you in the dark. We can be concealed in Christ where you don't have to hide yourself anymore. You don't have to be someone else. You don't have to act like this or be like this or do this to get something that the world is only going to give you for a short period of time and you're never going to be satisfied. You can be you, but in hidden in Christ where you're clothed in him. You put on Jesus, as Paul says in verse 14, but put on Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. How we do it? How do we put on Jesus? Like if you're like a literal thinker like me, sometimes I read that, I'm like, how do I put on Jesus? So how does this work? We put on Jesus when our old ways are nailed to the cross. And we wear the grace and forgiveness of Jesus as a glorious garment for all the world to see. Putting on Jesus means letting the world or letting the Lord be our armor and embracing him over and over and daily trusting in him in faith and thankfulness and obedience. To put Jesus on means to follow him in discipleship. Letting other, our lives be conformed to the image of Jesus. Putting Jesus on means abiding in Jesus and living to please him. John Wesley described it as a strong and beautiful expression for the most intimate union with him and being clothed with all the graces which were in him. We are clothed in Jesus when we become so closely united with Jesus that others see him and not us. As we are clothed in Jesus, we love him and adore him and we thereby, in his love, love our neighbors. Love is the answer. And so I don't know where any of you guys are today. Some of you probably feel like you've already faded pretty far down. There's probably not even a fire inside of you. So when I say Jesus, it's just another name. Even showing up here was probably even work. Being here, you're just trying to get by and you're trying to make it. Some of you don't even know what the light is. Some of you don't even know what the flame is or that embrace of love that Jesus gives that is unlike anything of this world. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for anybody who wants to come up and be prayed for. We're going to have the prayer team come up and just have a time and a space for you guys to be prayed over, to be prayed and equipped. If anyone feels, yeah, you guys go ahead and come up wants prayer and have a time of prayer, I just want to create that space. Because it's not easy being Christian. And whoever said it was, was lying. It is a battle. It is a fight every single day. It's a fight to do and be like Christ. And so I just want to be able to have a space for you guys to be able to be prayed over, have a time just to be lifted up, to be built up together. We're in this together. The fight isn't alone. The fight is communal. The fight is us as a body of Christ to fight together. So when you're down, we build you up. When you're going through something, we're there. That when you're facing something, you're not alone. But we also want to know that the power is in prayer. The change is in prayer. The transformation is in prayer. And we believe that. Every ounce of that, we believe it. Because it's a straight line connection to Jesus and what he can do. It's right here where the Holy Spirit can stir and move and change our hearts to fill us, to satisfy us. So if you're in here and you want to be prayed over, please come up. We love to pray over you and take time to just lift you up in prayer. 
and be here for you. So I'm going to go ahead and just have a time to open it up in prayer, and then we'll go from there. If you want to be prayed over, please come on up.